the sort of cultural revolution that you know Pearl Jam was, which sounds really dramatic to say, but you know, in seventh grade <laughs> when they were huge, it was so powerful, right? And it was like the connective tissue of my friend group in a lot of ways. 93X presents the Celebration Rock Podcast with Stephen Hyden. This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Here we are, Vitalogyology Part 2, talking about verses. In case you missed our episode last week, we at Celebration Rock are doing a seven-part series on the history of Pearl Jam. And we began last week at the only spot that you can begin with, with Pearl Jam, which is 10. And I think that was a really good episode. I, I was pleased with the response. I would say it was about 95% positive. I did get a couple of complaints from people who thought I should have talked about Garden more, or Deep, or Oceans, or, you know, the deep cuts on that record. Why are you talking about Jeremy so much? I heard that. I understand the complaints. Um, But, you know, I think as we go along and hit records that didn't have as many singles as 10, just by virtue of that, we're going to be talking about more deep cuts. So hopefully the people, the deep cuts people... The people who hate the singles and just want to talk about the obscure cuts, hopefully you will be more satisfied with our subs- with our subsequent episodes. Um, we're talking about the second Pearl Jam record today, Versus. And before we begin, you know, bring out our guest, I want to read something here. This is an excerpt from a, a review of Versus. And dare I say, this was probably the most trenchant review written of that record at the time. Uh, so I wanted to just begin the episode by, by reading it just to kind of give a taste of like what the response was at the time to this record. If ever there was a band I got sick of, it was Pearl Jam. I got sick of hearing about how awesome they were supposed to be. I got sick of seeing Pearl Jam shirts on the backs of every other kid at my school. And I swore that if MTV played that Jeremy video one more time, I would grab a gun of my own and point it at the television. So that's the lead of the review. Which you might think, okay, this is going to be a negative review, but actually the the writer goes on to praise verses as amazing, electrifying, delightfully raw and funky, and simply having no filler. And then ending the review with an A+. Now, who wrote this amazing piece of rock criticism? Well, that would be me. That was the review that I wrote for my local paper when I was 16. Um, As you can guess from the lead, Versus was a turning point for me personally in liking Pearl Jam. Um, You know, with, with 10, I was firmly in the backlash camp. I was a Nirvana fan. I read Kurt Cobain interviews where he slagged off Pearl Jam. And to me, 10 was the record that was everywhere, and I was just sick of hearing it all the time. So in the early going, I couldn't stand Pearl Jam. But then Versus came out, and uh, my mind changed 
And I pretty quickly became a huge Pearl Jam fan after this record came out. Um, you know, they often say that with big-time records, that it's the record that comes after the big-time record that, that reaps the benefits of the popularity of, of the predecessor record. For instance, like when ACDC put up Back in Black. You know, Back in Black is one of the best-selling records of all time. Back in Black never went to number one. It was the album after Back in Black, For Those About to Rock, We Salute You. That's the album that went to number one. You can say the same thing about Pearl Jam. You know, 10 was a record. It comes out at the end of the summer of 91, and it takes about a year for that record to really take off. And then, of course, once it takes off, it, it just goes crazy. And it's still the best-selling record that Pearl Jam ever put out. But 10 never topped the charts. The record that topped the charts was the record that came after 10, which is Versus. And, you know, I'm sure that there were a lot of people like me that maybe weren't so sure about Pearl Jam right away, and then Versus came out, and then they really came on board. Um, because, I mean, the numbers that this album did in its first week um, are pretty astronomical. I mean, first of all, Versus, it debuted at the top of the album's chart in 1993. It sold just over 950,000 copies in its first five days of release. Now, to put that number in perspective, if you had added up all the sales for the other nine records in the top ten that week, it wouldn't equal what Versus did in its first week. That's how big that record was. It really was everywhere. It was the record where if you liked ten, or if you'd heard ten, or, or whatever, all the momentum that had built up over the previous years, it, 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 it just exploded at this very moment. Um, and you know, Pearl Jam, like that, was the biggest band anywhere. You could really say that, that week that Versus came out represents sort of the pinnacle of Pearl Jam's popularity. Revisiting Versus now, what, what I'm struck with is how much of, of a machine Pearl Jam was at this time. You know, we talked about in the first episode about how when, when they recorded 10, they hadn't been a band that long. You know, it, the record came out not even a year after Pearl Jam's first rehearsal. So basically, they came together, put some songs together, made this record, and then they went out on the road for two years. And when they went back to the studio to make verses, you, I mean, you can hear it on the record. I mean, this is a band that was very road-tested. And uh, they were just capable of pumping out incredibly powerful sounding music at this time. I mean, they were just like a clenched fist. You know, that, 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 that line in Animal, that, that five against one line, I mean, that really was true of Pearl Jam at this moment. Um, when you read about the, the making of the record, it really was a fraught process. I mean, the, the, the sort of caricature of Eddie Vedder being a brooding you know, sort of anti-rock star, rock star figure. It really starts to enter into the picture at this point. Yeah, you know, because with, with 10, Pearl Jam was basically willing to do anything to get their names out. I mean, not only did you know, they made music videos, they toured all the time. They also were pretty accessible in terms of being interviewed. Like, if you go online and you look for Pearl Jam interviews, 
you can find Eddie Vedder talking to college newspapers, to small radio stations. They were not very selective at that time because they were a band trying to make their name. But by the time Versus came along, you know, they were a huge band at this point, and the willingness to put themselves out there as much, it, it just wasn't there. Um, and a lot of that came from Eddie Vedder, not just from the promotional standpoint, but also from making the music. Uh, there's a famous story about how Pearl Jam was booked into the studio in Northern California to make verses, you know, because they are like the hottest band in the world. And the record company is willing to bankroll a huge recording budget in a luxury studio for their new superstar band to record the follow-up to this huge debut 10. And Eddie Vedder is really uncomfortable with this. He doesn't want to be making a record in this sort of very classic rock, luxury, cocaine and caviar type environment. Um, the sense is that the other guys in Pearl Jam maybe weren't as reticent as Eddie Vedder was, but Vedder was in the process of taking over the band. I mean, 10 was a record that was conceived initially by Stone Gossard. He brought in Jeff Amitt and Mike McCready, but in Eddie Vedder came in last. So he was the lead singer on that record. But on Versus, you see the beginnings of Eddie Vedder really being the general of Pearl Jam. But that process it hadn't fully taken hold. Like, Vitology is a record that Eddie Vedder was in control of. But Versus, I think, if there's something that really makes this record unique in Pearl Jam's catalog, is that I think it's the most band-oriented record that they ever made. They're in the studio. A lot of the songs are coming together through through jamming. And because they've played on the road so much, they're able to just put songs together in an, a really powerful way. And because they also had started working with Brendan O'Brien on this record, Brendan O'Brien being one of the great producers of 90s rock, he's worked with Stone Temple Pilots. That, that's kind of how he made his name in the 90s. And then, of course, he later worked with Bruce Springsteen. Um, but with Versus, he forged a long-standing relationship with Pearl Jam. And what Brendan O'Brien brought to the table was that he was able to convey, much more effectively than on the first record, the power of Pearl Jam as a live unit. Um, so, so the band aspect of Versus and the live aspect of this record, you know, reproducing what Pearl Jam was capable of doing live, I think that is what makes this record stand apart. Uh, from other Pearl Jam records. And I have to say that it's probably still my favorite. And some of that is fueled by nostalgia because it was the first Pearl Jam record that I ever loved. But, you know, I was listening to it while driving to the studio to record this, and I have to say it still holds up. Uh, if not as my favorite Pearl Jam, as, as certainly as a record that is in the running. So this is something I want to talk about. Uh, so I brought in another fan of Pearl Jam, another fan of this record, uh, and that is Dave Hartley. Now, Dave brings an interesting perspective because he is a musician himself. He's the bass player in one of my favorite bands right now, The War on Drugs. And he also has a, a great other band that he's the main guy in, and that's a band called Nightlands, which I really suggest you check out. Um, it's a, much different than War on Drugs, but really cool, makes really cool records uh, with Nightlands. Um, but Dave, you know, he and I are around the same age. We're both in our late 30s. So we were around the same age when Versus came out. And for people of a certain age, like if you were in middle school or high school, 
in 1993, the release of Versus was a major cultural event. <laughs> you know, because again, you know, 10, when 10 came out, people didn't know what Pearl Jam was, so they had to discover that record over the course of two years. But in 93, Versus is coming out, the world was waiting for that record. And I have very vivid, vivid memories of getting that record for the first time, and so did Dave. So we talked a lot about that. I was also interested in talking to Dave about the nature of band dynamics. Um, you know, because he's in a band uh, where there's a very definite sort of leader. Uh, you know, like Adam uh, is the lead singer and, and the songwriter in The War on Drugs. The band is his band. And I was curious to get Dave's take on that and how it relates to Pearl Jam. Because band dynamics and the shifting of that was a big storyline in the band starting around this time. And of course, you know, since Dave is a bass player, there's a lot of Jeff Amet talk in this episode. A lot of talk about fretless basses and floppy hats. And uh, by the way, Dave and I, neither one of us, I don't think, pronounced Amet, Ament, Ament, Amant. I don't think either one of us settled on a pronunciation of his name. So again, that's a drinking game in this series, by the way. Anytime I mispronounce Jeff Amet's name, you have to take a drink. There's another thing, too. I Before we begin, I should make a special note. You know, we recorded these episodes, you know, these interviews, like a month or so ago. And there's a lot of talk about Pearl Jam drummers in the upcoming episode. Up, in this episode and the episodes ahead. I'm a big fan of Dave Abruzizé. Abruzizuzu. Dave A. We'll call him Dave A. He was the drummer on Verses and on Vitology. Um, and when we recorded these episodes, it wasn't clear if he was going to be invited to appear at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So there's a lot of campaigning on my part for Dave A. Because he's my favorite Pearl Jam drummer of all time. Um, well, it was announced last week that Pearl Jam is going to be bringing all five of their drummers to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I'd like to think that somehow Eddie got a bootleg copy of our interviews and he heard my pleas and he was like, you know what? Steve is right. I'm going to invite Dave A to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. So anyway, if you hear us talking about that in this episode or in episodes subsequent to this, just remember that we recorded these a while ago. But, you know, it's always good to stand up for Dave A because he is a sort of an unheralded, unsung part of Pearl Jam history. So anyway, I'm excited to get into this conversation about verses. Here is me and Dave Hartley from The War on Drugs. So, Dave... Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, by the way, this Pearl Jam uh, retrospective that we're doing. Um, I realized before I called you that it's sort of doubly appropriate that we're talking about verses because I know that you are in the studio right now with the War on Drugs and you guys are working on the follow-up to a much-beloved record. Yeah. And Versus itself is a follow-up to a much-beloved record. So there's sort of a synchronicity here that I did not intend but it's there nonetheless. Yeah, that's funny. I didn't. I hadn't thought of it that way. But uh, yeah, I mean, at least for Pearl Jam, it was a massive amount of pressure. I think you know they had had this explosive debut. I think it's a little different for us because, well, for a million reasons. But you know, Lost in the Dream was our fourth album, if you are counting our EP um, called Future Weather. So. You know, it felt like it felt like we had a series of steps that got us to the Lost in the Dream sort of, you know, uh, 
place, even though for a lot of people that was the first they'd heard of us. You right. know, it felt like it felt like a ladder in that sense. So maybe not quite as intense as the uh, pressure that Eddie and company put on themselves. Well, and that is always part of the narrative of verses that Pearl Jam, you know, they put out ten, and ten came out, I think, like less than a year before their first gig. So they weren't a band that long. That record comes out, and it just is humongous. You know, they go from yep. zero to one hundred in no time at all. And then it's time to put out this next record versus their second album. And like you say, there's a lot of pressure on the band. And if you know about the making of this record, it wasn't a very happy time, especially for Eddie Vedder. He's talked about how this was the least fun album for him to make. Yeah. You know, there's this story about how the record company booked them into this fancy studio in Northern California. Like, Yeah, the, the site, right? Yeah, yeah. And it was it's called... And, um, it, he was totally thrown off by that. He did not want to record because yep. in his mind, he, you know, had these sort of like punk, he had this like punk rock baggage and this right. idea that they were going to be like Led Zeppelin now, like recording in multi-million dollar studios, uh, it threw him for a loop. Um, so there was a lot of discomfort with this record in the making of it. And then of course it comes out and it's a humongous hit sells almost a million copies in its first week. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to tell, to explain this to people now who weren't alive at the time, uh, that Pearl Jam was like Taylor Swift of its day. Like they were a rock sure. band, but they were selling Taylor Swift numbers. Um, just an enormous Mass- band, massive, massively huge, huge in a way that rock bands clearly aren't now and maybe won't be again. You know, we don't seem to be in that place right now with rock bands anyway. Yeah, um, I was wondering, are they are they like the last truly huge rock band? Well, you know, I think if you talk about some of the late 90s, like rap rock bands, they right. were pretty huge, too. Um, it's yeah. funny, with, I was just talking to my producer before we went on about Limp Biscuit. He had chocolate starfish and the hot dog flavored water on his desk. He probably doesn't want me sharing that with people, but it was on his desk. And I know that album sold like a million in its first week, or maybe even like a right. million and a half. So, you know, there was that wave of bands, but that's kind of the end, I think. That's as, the end. For, yeah. As far as... I, being really huge. I feel like now you have the Foo Fighters. I feel like they're sort of the conventional pick for, like, you know, America's huge band. Right. Or if you want to, you know, talk about, you know, if you want to go into, like, 21 Pilots era, you know, like, bands that, like, are right. sort of rock, but also draw right. in other stuff. Um, but, but so I mean, you... yeah, there's no way, I mean, the, the sort of cultural revolution that, you know, Pearl Jam was, which sounds really dramatic to say but if you if you were you know in seventh grade <laughs> when they were huge it was so powerful right and um it was like the connective tissue of my friend group in a lot of ways yeah totally um, and and they were a band that um there's a connection between pearl jam and sort of classic rock history like bands that were big after that are aren't as connected to like the bands of the sixties and seventies and that whole lineage right. that Pearl Jam was. So like when you listen to Pearl Jam, it kind of brought you into that. If you weren't already into that sort of world, um, you yep. know, you and I were talking before this podcast, you know, we were just chatting about this record and you and I, I think are around the same age. Like, are you like mid thirties? 
Yeah, I'm 36. You're 36. I'm 39. And you just mentioned how when you were in seventh grade or whatever, that Pearl Jam was like the connective <laughs> tissue with your friends. I yep. think that's a good way to put it. Um, can you talk about like what like, what are your memories of this record when it came out? Like, I remember there just being a lot of anticipation for it. Yeah, I mean, it was like Christmas morning for uh, my friends and I. I remember my friend Andy Ayers got the record first. I don't remember how he got it first, but I remember making him sing me one of the songs because I couldn't bear to wait. I was like, what does it sound like? What does it sound like? And he sang me Daughter. And I was like, whoa, this sounds amazing. <laughs> like, just him singing Daughter to me <laughs> blew my mind, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, we just, it's, it's you, you, you never love a band the way you love a band when you're that age. Like, right. it was just pure reverence. And... You know, saying they were cool is just totally insufficient for how much we loved that band. I mean, which actually brings up the question that I was thinking about. It's like, when did they become uncool? Because it sort of feels like Pearl Jam is like not, you know, they're not mentioned as like a cool band. They're sort of like, oh, Pearl Jam, you know, they're sort of middle of the road or something. But, I mean, God, they were so cool. And they felt so rebellious and, and sort of dangerous, you know, the way like Eddie's sort of persona, you know, regardless of how much of that is mythology and how much of it is true. See, I think, and to a seventh grader, it felt so, so real. Well, it's interesting because, like, my path to Versus, is, it was a little bit different. Like, I obviously knew 10, and uh, I think I liked it, but, like, I was such a Nirvana fan yep. in the early 90s that I couldn't let myself like Pearl Jam. You right. know, I, I just, I took that bullshit basically it is, it is bullshit but i took it so seriously because you know kurt cobain he had the thing where he was slagging pearl jam in the press you know calling right. them a bandwagon band and likening them to a cock rock band and all that stuff and i yep. just took that hook line and sinker you know i was 13 14 years old so like i loved Nevermind, and you know i i couldn't let myself like 10 and i remember this being a pivotal moment in my transition into loving pearl jam and I think this is a big moment for a lot of people who are into rock music at this at this time and were teenagers. It was when Pearl Jam played on the VMAs in 1993, right. and they played with Neil Young. And yep. Versus was just about to come out, and they played Animal, which I thought was incredible. I thought, like, yeah, wow, so this good. is this is like the greatest Pearl Jam song ever. Yeah. And then yeah. they bring out Neil Young, and they play Rockin' in the Free World. Rockin' in the Free World, yeah. And I thought, wow, this is... This is so awesome. But, like, I was so wrapped up in the Pearl Jam Nirvana rivalry. And I write about this yeah. in my book. But, like, you know, I, I was so wrapped up in that rivalry that I could not admit to people that I liked Pearl Jam mm. after this. So, like, I taped that right. performance and I would just kind of watch it in secret, like, over my lunch right. break. <laughs> and I just could not <laughs> admit to people uh, yeah. that I liked it. But And then Versus came out. And Versus, for me, was the transition to fully loving Pearl Jam. Yeah. Um, well, it's a better... It's it's a, a better much set. better record, right? Well, it's, inter it's interesting because I think from a songwriting perspective, 10 is probably better. I mean, you can't deny the anthems on 10, you know, Black, yep. Alive, Release, Porch. Yep. You know, yep. there's, they're still eating off those songs. But yep. the sound of it, like the Brendan O'Brien production, yep. and the fact that they had been a band on the road now for like three years or so, it's a much more sort of live sounding record. Like it sounds like a band yeah. in a room playing. So it's, um, I remember responding to that, that it just, 
I guess in the parlance of being a 17-year-old, it just rocked. It rocked more than yeah. 10 did to me. Uh, well, 10, 10 definitely had the sort of holdover 80s drum sound as well, which is, I didn't remember that, but I kind of listened to 10 for a second recently, and I was like, God, it's like, it does have this sort of arena, almost like Motley Crue, giant drum sound, which is a little maybe cock rock or a little bit corporate sounding. Totally. And then versus is just way drier. It's it almost, you know, it pretty, it's, that's what struck me about, about it listening to it this morning. I was like, God, it's so, uh, there's like mistakes and it, you can really hear them playing together. It's, it's very raw for like a mega album. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, and Pearl Jam ended up remixing 10 and it was re-released in 2009, you know, and, and there's a story about how like Jeff, is it Amen or Amen? I feel like I've been mispronouncing this for 25 years. I always say Amen. Is it Amen? Oh, I don't know. I don't know, but I have no idea if that's I'm, correct or not. I'm going to look at my producer. Is it Amen or, or Amen? Uh, Amen. It's Ahmed. Okay, we're going to say Ahmed. Yeah. We're going to go with that. I know there's going to be people who listen to this podcast and are going to complain because somehow it will be Ahmed. But we're going to say <laughs> Ahmed for the record. Um, you know, He had this thing where he, he wanted to remix the record immediately after hearing it, 10, because mm. there's like so much reverb on the record. Yep. And yep. it is amazing to revisit 10 and you know, at, you know now versus how you felt about it then because at the time it just seemed like this is just like cutting edge. This is like punk rock, you know, like as a, as a kid who had never heard punk rock, who only knew alternative rock, it was like, Oh, this is, I mean, right. cause it seemed so much edgier than like poison and Def Leppard. But now yeah. you listen to it and it doesn't sound that much different than maybe some of the big kind of rock records that were being made other than just the song. I mean, the, the songs are still great, but yeah, yep. versus does seem in a way more like the first Pearl Jam album, maybe. Well, yeah, and it's probably when they they took control of their legacy, you know, uh, started controlling their recording process and everything. Yeah. Um, and sort of insisting on, you know, less reverb, essentially. Right. Um, it was like, wait, so, like, do you remember the first time you heard Versus, like, as a seventh grader? I can't remember the exact first time that I heard it. Um, I remember just being totally obsessed with it. Um, I remember, I think that's probably that, or maybe one of the Nirvana albums. What I probably listened to, if you were to like add up the amount of times I've listened to songs, I probably listened to those albums the most of anything in my entire life. You know, <laughs> right. it's such, you know, you were just totally limited to whatever CDs you had and whatever was on the radio or MTV, you know, and I think I probably had 20 CDs at that age, maybe, Tops. Right. It's such, such a narrow scope, you know, and like, God, I just loved it. Uh, I listened to it all the time. I had a friend, my best friend in middle school was this guy, Brad Bisco, and he was so obsessed with Pearl Jam that people started calling him Pearl Jam. And then people <laughs> just never called him Brad ever again. So it was just, I was just hanging out with Pearl Jam all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, hearing you talk about this, it, it, it does kind of bring me back, I guess, to that old. Nirvana versus Pearl Jam binary because you know yeah. Nirvana was the bigger band in the short term like when Nirvana when Nevermind came out that record was so huge but already by 93 with versus it seemed like Pearl Jam was bigger like at my school yep. 
it seemed like Pearl Jam was like almost like twice as popular as Nirvana was. Yep. Like, why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I mean, I well, guess I, somewhat. I guess some people. Would, I mean, they're more. I guess of a straightforward band. Maybe I, that that would probably be what the sort of critic of Pearl Jam would say. That Pearl Jam is an yeah. easier band to like. Yeah, they're more accessible, and the sort of the funny thing is when I was listening to verses. You know, if you think of Pearl Jam as these sort of angsty dudes and Eddie Vedder as sort of not being completely comfortable with fame or being a mega-selling band, like, if you listen to Versus, that is an album that is completely swinging for the fences. You know, every single song is, like, meticulously arranged with these giant choruses and hooks everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, that's an album that is very carefully crafted to sell millions and millions of copies. Right. There's... You know, they're in no way undermining their popularity on verses. Maybe the sound is really raw. Maybe it's a really direct recording. But, I mean, it's like there's just no filler whatsoever on that album. So and I think they wanted it. You know, I think maybe Nirvana, there was a little bit more ambivalence coming from Kurt um, right. about his fame, whereas I think Pearl Jam, you listen to that album, they were obviously trying to top ten and make an even more massive record yeah um you could see later on in their career when they started doing like maybe around no code or something they started to obviously not try to make mega selling albums but versus like it just just sounds massive to me and sounds like a number one record listening to it now yeah i mean i was talking about this with someone else talking about how pearl jam did a really good job especially at this you know in this era of writing songs that uh, would sound really good live, like really powerful live, but also yeah. were yep. catchy enough and well written enough where you could play them on the radio, and they would yep. make sense. And you know, there is almost an element of like, um, you know, like when I when I talk, like when you think about that, I think of like someone like Tom Petty or something being like the master of that. You know, this right. the guy who can like write a song like American Girl, and that's a great sounding radio song. And right. it's also like you listen to a cover band play American Girl, and it sounds awesome. Like it, it, right. just just how that's constructed. And Pearl Jam was really good at that, where you know you'd have the riff at the beginning that establishes the song. You know, you'd have mm-hmm. the verse that kind of draws you in, the big chorus, and then there's always like some sort of outro guitar. Yeah, or, some vamping at the end. Yeah, that, so, like, always so hooky. Exactly, and like if you see them live, you know, you know that's going to get drawn out into this jammy yep. thing and it's going to sound awesome. And they were just really good at doing that kind of balancing the sort of grittiness that you need and the craftsmanship. You know, what's really crazy too, is that I read the Wikipedia page about verses today, of course, um, <laughs> <laughs> as we do now, that's how, that's what we've been reduced to in our music fandoms. We just like read Wikipedia pages. Oh, I love this band. I've read all the Wikipedia entries. <laughs> Right. I was reading about how they wrote that album through jamming together. Right. That is a fucking miracle. Like, <laughs> that does not usually produce any kind of song. Like, I've, you know, the first, like, 20 bands I was in, starting all the way in high school and stuff, you know, you, you always try to be like, oh, we'll just jam together, like, the five of us, and we'll come up with a great song. And it's just, you know, arguments and everybody soloing at once. You know, and and since then, all the like successful musical endeavors that I've been involved with um, have been 
sort of assisting one person's vision. You know, the war on drugs is totally about bringing Adam's visions to life. And um, in my band, I have a band Nightlands. It's just my thing. You know, I don't I don't really collaborate with it. And I find that it leads to like a pure thing. You know, it's just like it has idiosyncrasies and it's just one person's sort of idea. And so like to hear that these insane pop songs that were hooky and they work so well live or on record were just like these five guys jamming studio that just sounds crazy to me like it's a miracle that that worked well and you know i mean it is interesting to listen to verses as like a band record because after this for the next couple records they they became more of eddie vetter's band like on Mm -hmm. vitology and no code he was basically the ringmaster more of like the situation that you were talking about in in the war on drugs in your own band nightlands where it's one guy's vision and everyone is sort of the supporting cast and it did seem like that was a source of tension in the band because when they started, yep. it was Stone Gossard writing a lot of ten himself, and then right. Jeff Ahmed, of course, being a big part of that. And they had to realize, or you know, for the good of the band, they had to sort of cede to this to this front man who was a yep. really good songwriter, and also the thing that kind of separated them from every other band. You know, this mm-hmm. like right. great looking, charismatic, you know, great vocalist frontman. Yeah, really iconic, you know, vocalist. Right. Um, and that's another thing that I was thinking about when I was listening to it is how his vocal style kind of spawned some really terrible bands. Um, <laughs> right. You know, I'm not the first one to point this out, but like, you know, there's all these sort of imitators. He kind of spawned a whole genre of like this post-grunge, you know, the Creeds and the Candle Boxes and the Bushes and all these bands that kind of sang like this really throaty sort of stylized, uh, almost like kind of mas- masculinized style. Right. So he spawned all these terrible imitators, but God, he was just, it, do- it doesn't detract from the original. When that can always be said, you know, like, I was thinking about Raging Against the Machine, which is, a, you know, in, in some senses created rap rock, as we know it anyway. And I think that ended up crushing them, you know, because now I can't really listen to Raging It's the Machine, because all I think about is, like, Limp Biscuit or something. <laughs> right. Well, their imitator, their imitator sort of killed them through imitation, but I think Eddie's vocal style was so powerful that it, it, it withstood that. Well, you, I mean, you, you brought up something earlier about how Pearl Jam, you know, isn't a cool band, a co- you know, cool band in quotes, and I think what you're talking about is a big reason why. I mean, they were so... Yeah. And this happens to anything that gets humongous. You know, like it's yeah. easier when you're just sort of a cult band and the only people that know about you are the people that love you. You know, Pearl Jam yep. was so big that people who couldn't stand Pearl Jam couldn't avoid them, especially at that yep. time when, you know, yep. it's pre-internet and MTV and radio uh, were such a huge way of listening to music. Um, you know, Pearl Jam was unavoidable. So, like, if especially if you were a person, you know, who maybe came up in the '80s listening to a lot of the American indie bands of the '80s, uh, you know, like the you know your your, your Black Flags, your Replacements, your Dinosaur right. Juniors, all those sort of our band could be your life type bands. Um, yep. To hear a band like Pearl Jam, who had some sort of punk, you know, influences in their sound, but they are for the most part a band. You know, they're the Who, they're Led Zeppelin. You know, right, they, they right, come right. from that. So to hear a band like that become popular, 
and then to influence all of these other bands, many of whom were incredibly shitty, you know, and have that right. kind of take over the culture. I think that contributed a lot to them not having the coolness maybe. Um, and the fact too, you know, and you brought up, I think a really interesting point, you know, you were talking about how you love them as a seventh grader and I was around the same age, loving them in middle school. Um, you know, we're, we're kind of used to now rock bands having an older audience, you know, guys in their thirties and forties. I mean, Pearl Jam really did connect with a teenage, even tween age audience. Totally. You know, and I think that also in a way ends up detracting from your coolness, maybe in the long run, at least in the short term, you know, yeah, they weren't a teeny bopper band. But they did have, I mean, you don't sell 10 million records just appealing to, like, vinyl collectors and rock nerds. Right. You know, you gotta, you got to appeal to little kids. I mean, if, if little kids are buying your record, then you are a pop star. And Pearl Jam, yep. I think, yep. had that, uh, at least on those first couple records. Oh, yeah. I mean, my, my friend Pearl Jam, Brad, <laughs> was, like, a very, very, like, angsty kid. You know, he had some... Uh, problems, you know, I guess. I don't want to get too much into it, but he definitely had some, like, self-esteem problems and maybe some problems at home a little bit. And, I mean, he just, this was, like, the greatest thing, the greatest, uh, the, the panacea for all his problems was, like, he really, he really felt like, and I think I felt like this as well, but maybe to a little bit lesser of a degree, but he felt like Eddie understood him, right? you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's a huge thing. Like for some seventh grader in Maryland to think that this guy, some stoner from Seattle or wherever, uh, understands him and understands his problems and the pain that he's feeling and how hard it is to be in middle school. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, and you know, it's it's easy to laugh at that kind of thing, you know, because it's so earnest, but it's absolutely <laughs> true. I I remember having very serious conversations with friends of mine and you know, in the early 90s, where we would talk about how Eddie Vedder, when he sang, it seemed like he was singing directly to you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, yeah. And again, like, you say that, and it's very easy to hear that and, like, roll your eyes and go, oh, come on, really? You know, but it's it, it's true, you know? And, yeah. and maybe that also kind of plays into the uncoolness of it. I mean, I think with Pearl Jam, there is sort of an unguardedness to yeah. the emotionalism of that band, where if if you buy in... It pays off in a big way. If you don't, it's easy to kind of laugh at it and think that it's yeah, overwrought easy to make fun of, or silly. Sure. You know, yep. you. I know that you revisited this record for the first time in a while. You know, getting ready for this podcast. Like, what are your feelings now about the record versus like how? How's your? How are your feelings about versus versus how you felt? Yeah. You know, twenty five years ago. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I've, I've just. I'm in such a different place now, and I tend to, li- I mean, I listen to, like, ambient music all the time now, mainly because I find it so soothing, and I listen to, my my tastes have drifted into so many different places that it sounded very alien in my home. You know, I, you know I'm <laughs> right. listening to, like, Sade and the Beach Boys and these kind of things. Um, and so to put on verses, it was this sort of this giant racket in my house. But it was so exciting, even now. Um, and I just, I was like tearing up on, <laughs> on elderly woman, which is crazy. <laughs> I mean, you know, part of that I'm sure is nostalgia. Um, but I, 
I was really surprised how powerful it was to listen to it um, all these years later, and um, and much more powerful than Ten, which I think maybe has diminished a little bit just because of it's so iconic, right? And it's so it's just maybe been explored a little too much. So yeah, that, that doesn't do do much any you know do much for me anymore. But versus. Felt like a little time capsule for me, and it. And I knew the crazy thing is I knew every note of every lyric <laughs> right. that he was singing. Still, I just was singing along like it was. You know, it's just definitely still in my brain. Now, like you know, you you mentioned elderly woman behind the counter in a small town, like is making you tear up. So you obviously respond to that song. Like, yeah. what, what other songs stand out to you on this album? All of them, honestly. <laughs> all, but I mean, that that sounds ridiculous. But I couldn't believe how there were like there wasn't even any there wasn't a single lull. Um, you know, I thought Animal was just really remarkable. The amount of energy it has. Um, WMA was was really amazing, especially kind of like thinking about it now. And it's a pretty topical thing, and it, it it's pretty cool that Eddie Vedder wrote this song about police brutality. Um, yeah, you as know, a white dude from Seattle. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you brought that song up, and he's talking about WMA, short for White Male American, and it's this sort of tribally sounding song. It's like yep. sort of funky. I mean, you know, the when you listen to verses, I think especially, um, there is like a strain of Chili Peppersness in the yeah, there is. that's like kind of disreputable. But like I think it works. Like I, you know, like there's that song "Rats," which is a very Chili yep. Peppers sounding song to me, um, yep. and WMA has part of that. And you know, there have been times like when I listen, when I revisit verses, and WMA to me will sound will seem like okay, you know, they're, they're trying a little too hard with this song. This song is like a little over the top. You know, I don't know if this totally works, but it is funny like how it's kind of come back around on that record, and you think like. Especially in light of what's you know been going on yeah. in the world the last, I mean, police brutality obviously has been a problem forever. But like in terms of being in the media, it's been yeah. really prominent in the last you know several years here. And to think like, okay, yeah, Pearl Jam did a song about that in 1993. Yeah. It is kind of you wouldn't expect to hear that from like a white hard rock band from the 90s. And that, that, and that were, didn't exist to me. You know, the idea of police brutality would. It was so, you know, we, I didn't know about that. I grew up in the suburbs, white, white dude. Right. Yeah, this wasn't like a thing that I knew about, and it wasn't in the news. So it's, it's interesting, you know. Think, and that song really, it's funny you said Chili Peppers, though. I, I didn't connect that, but thinking to that record, there's definitely some of, some of that, like John Frusciante, John Frusciante-isms. But and the kind of funky, just, like the funky drums, yeah. like, you know, like, yep, uh, yep. and I always butcher his name, but Dave Abruzizé. The drummer, Daisy or whatever, yeah, yeah, who uh, has become a shadowy figure in Pearl Jam history. You know, he played yeah. on this record, played on Vitology, and then he was fired. You know, there was that story about from the making of verses that like uh, Bruce Ize, we'll call him Dave A. Dave A. shows up in like a fancy black sports car to the studio while they're making verses, and uh. and like you know Eddie Vedder was driving like you know what like some truck or something like a like a beater. And he looks right. at the sports car, and he was just like shaking his head because he was upset at his drummer for buying a sports car. And then, you know, like a year later, he was kicked out of the band. And you know, there's yeah. part of me that's like, ah, oh, he just wanted a nice ride, man. Don't yeah. you know, he? Had, I really like Dave. I I'm always sad that he got fired from the band. Yeah, 
He had the soul patch. Uh, he had the long hair. You know. Happy go lucky. What's that? Um, he seems pretty happy go lucky. Um, yeah. Seemed to be enjoying it. Maybe he enjoyed it too much. I don't know. Yeah, he was um, he was kind of like the rock dude in that band. Like he was kind of the right. one guy who was like, you know, he didn't know that the '80s were over. You know, he didn't. I wonder get... too, you know, if he, if he was enjoying like maybe he was enjoying some of the the fruits of success a little too much. Right. And I mean, I mean, like women and drugs or something. Right. Um, if that's happening and the rest of the band is out of sync with that, it, that doesn't usually work. Yeah, I mean, my my image of Pearl Jam at that time when they were on the road is that like Dave A is at the strip club. You know, right. do, doing the cocaine off of strippers' tits, and then Eddie Vedder's like off reading Noam Chomsky like, alone <laughs> yeah. in his hotel room or something. Yeah, like, doing a bong hit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was sort of the extent. You know, that was sort of like the dichotomy going on, and you know, and, and I, I'm not speaking. I, I'm just speculating on Dave. I don't mean to uh, slander him. Maybe he wasn't doing that, but that's like my image of Pearl Jam yep. at that time, and why he was why he was cut from the band. Um, yeah, like I, I I think of that song Leash. Yeah. Two, which I don't know if they've even, I mean, they rarely play that song live. You know, it, it, it certainly doesn't come up, but like, that was a great song. Yeah. And it had that sort of like generational uh, feel to it, like the, like the get out of my fucking face thing, you know, which was very yep. kind of a rage yep. against the machine type mm-hmm. sentiment at the time. Um, yeah. Glorified yeah. Glorif- G, I really enjoyed. Yeah, that's another song that like, Lyrically, sometimes I feel like is I wonder if it's too on the nose about the gun thing. Yeah. But again, that's another thing where you're like, okay, well, Pearl Jam was ahead of the curve on that as well. Um, you know, talking about guns and gun culture and, and musically too. That's like one of the catchiest songs on that Super record. Um, is this your favorite Pearl Jam record? It is. I mean, that that's not much of a distinction. You know, I I. They kind of didn't even exist in my uh, in my mind, other than deep within the recesses. Um, until I re-listened to this, I wouldn't have thought that I was even a fan of their music anymore. Um, but yeah. like, I re- I listened a little bit to Vitology, which has some really amazing stuff. I'm curious to dig into the like the later stuff because I sort of checked out around No Code. Yeah, um, I think like a lot of people. Um, so I'm cu- kind of curious to like sort of go back through their discography a little bit and dig around. But well, yeah, it's definitely my favorite favorite Pearl Jam album. Well, you'll have to listen to later episodes of this podcast because we will be digging into like the lesser known early 2000s albums, which I've actually come around to in the last like five years. And oh it was, yeah, and it was mainly because of the of the bootlegs of that time. Okay. Because like like Ben Oral. Um, I think it's sort yep. of like a hard record to get into just because of the production. But like when you hear mm-hmm. those songs live, there's a lot of really good songs. And again, okay. like Pearl Jam never really stopped writing songs that, that sound good live. Like they've right. always been good at that. Um, I think sometimes they haven't always captured them in their best form in the studio. Like to right. me, Pearl Jam first and foremost will always be a great live band who, you know, they, they put across their songs, I think best in, uh, you know, on stage versus in the studio. Um, but like versus to me, cause you know, I go back and forth between this record and Vitology being my favorite, um, yep. or maybe no code. I think no code's really good. Um, but versus to me probably gets the nod. I think because I loved it so much when I was a kid, I think that's got something to do with it. Yep. I also think that it 
really kind of captured their live sound and their live energy. Yeah. And I think even sounds to this so day, live. yeah, like it sounds live. I think even now, like it, it really kind of captures the power that they have on stage, maybe better than any other Pearl Jam record. It's really direct. It's a really direct album. That song, Daughter. Yeah. That's like, you know, you could give that song to Dolly Parton or to Taylor Swift or to Boys to Men. <laughs> and and I think it would you know I think you could make it work. It's just it's just got it's just very. Um, you could hear like Elton John playing that guitar, the opening guitar lick on piano. Right. Yeah, um, I, I'm dying to hear the Boys to Men version of Daughter now. You've planted the <laughs> seed in my brain that is not going to go away. Um, yeah. Why not? Yeah, you know, I want to go on one segue with you here because you're a bass player. So I feel like I'd be remiss if we did not talk about about Jeff. Ahmed yeah. here for a minute because I feel like he is always the sort of underrated guy in the band. Uh, yep. Great bass player, I think, especially on this record. You, know, you think yep. of Go, for instance, just the just the bass part on Go is just yep. pulverizing. Also, at this time, he had a vast array of very floppy hats. Uh, floppy hats. Which is always That's a great way because, you know, bass players, you know, you guys tend to be a little mild-mannered. Mild Sometimes, uh-huh. so like if you put on a floppy hat, it's a great way to kind of detract from the lead singer a little bit. It's like, wow, this lead singer is really charismatic, but this bass player has a really floppy hat, and I'm going to look at him for a while. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if you have any interest in sort of being influenced by Ahmet in that way and start wearing floppy hats maybe on stage with the war on drugs. Just a suggestion. As my yeah, yeah, as my hairline retreats and I get older, you know, nothing wrong with the floppy hat. Um, might explore that a little bit. And I mean he was also a very well documented basketball fan, which I'm a huge basketball fan. That's true. Um I remember when I was uh probably eighth grade, he was on NBA NBA inside stuff with the modern shot. Yeah. And he and he uh practiced with this uh the supersonics. And I was like really impressed. He was really good at basketball, actually. Yeah. Like they showed him like draining threes over, you know, I forget who it was, but I was really impressed. Um, yeah, I mean, I meant he was a huge influence on me as I started playing bass when I was like 13. Um, I started playing because Pearl Jam, my friend Brad, um, played guitar and. I probably would have played guitar, but I wanted to play a different instrument than Brad did so that we could play together. Yeah. Um, and I started playing bass and immediately kind of gravitated towards Jeff's sort of persona. And his bass lines are pretty amazing. And actually, listening with my 36-year-old ears now, I was really impressed with his feel. And he plays fretless on a bunch of songs, which I I play a lot of fretless. Um it kind of made me wish that I played bass in this era because records from the nineties, the bass is mixed so loud. <laughs> right. It's like, you know what I mean? It's really one of the loudest instruments um, and really well like articulated. You can hear everything. You could sit and like figure out everything Jeff is playing just by listening casually to the record. I mean, are there any songs in particular that jump out to you just from a bass player's perspective? Um, I mean, it's pretty, uh, stereotypical, but Jeremy has just an incredible bass line on it. He's yeah. doing these like harmonics and sort of these slides. Like it's really, um, it's the kind of thing that just 
become a little bit illegal, some of the stuff that he does. Like, fretless is, at some point, became a little uncool. Five strings became uncool. Is Playing that... things like harmonics or, you know, that kind of stuff at some point became a, not out of bounds, but a little bit less accepted. Um, but it... listening back, it sounds a little silly to think that they shouldn't be tried. They, they, they add so much. I mean, just because it's too pronounced or, like, too funky for a rock Like, why, what's the thinking? With, like, why did that become uh, sort of against the law? Yeah, why, who, why do they outlaw that kind of thing? Uh, I don't know. I guess I, there's just this idea of, like, somebody playing what we derisively call, like, a furniture bass, which is something, you know, <laughs> that looks like a piece of furniture and has a million strings. And, you know, you have this idea of this guy sitting over there playing a furniture bass just shredding away and not listening to anybody else and kind of smearing the rest of the band right. with his, like, busyness. So at some point, my, my sort of progression post-Ament or Ament was, like, getting into players like, you know, Paul McCartney or um, more restrained, Roger Waters, guys who are, like, way more restrained. Right. Um, or, I mean, I guess it's hard to call Paul McCartney restrained because he was so melodic, but um, more more uh, playing for the song. Right. Because, um, well, yeah, I mean, Ahmet definitely had, like, when I listened to, like, those, especially the early Pearl Jam records, we, like like you said, like, the, where the bass is, like, pretty prominent, it does make yeah. me think of, like, John Entwistle from The Who, you know, like, where it's totally. this metallic kind of tentacles going through, or it's almost like a rhythm guitar running through the song. <laughs> Or, and also the McCartney thing too, like as you said, like sort of the melodicism of his bass playing, I think is really important yeah. too. Um, but, you know, it, that is something I think that is uh, so unique about Pearl Jam. You know, we talk about how Eddie Vedder took control of the band, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like on the next record after this, but they have managed to kind of maintain a band like identity where you can point to each guy and say like well this is what he does and this is what he does and if you took them out it wouldn't be the same band right i wasn't aware that stone was like the creative force early on until like you know reading up now i you know as a kid i didn't know that i just kind of took them at face value i wasn't reading anything about them i just was listening to them yeah and i think you Um, can and, and i think if you like when you know that and you listen to 10 now you can hear like why that would be because it's very riff riff oriented, and right. the guitar and it it is more about the guitars and and also you know Stone Gossard being I think more of an unabashed sort of arena rock acolyte you know where like I don't really think like even like Ahmed I think has some punk rock in him I don't really think of Stone Gossard having any kind of punk rock yeah. in him yeah really you yeah. know and. He doesn't really. He doesn't seem like that. He he seems like a guy that would listen to Bad Company without irony at all. You know, uh, just would listen to Bad Company because yeah. he thought the riffs were awesome. You know, and yeah. you know, I think Ten has a lot of that where it is just like I'm just writing huge rock songs and right. without apology. And then verses is the beginning of them sort of leavening that more, mm-hmm. like you said, where. I don't think, like, especially compared to Vitology, I don't know if it's noisy necessarily, but it's definitely rambunctious, and it sounds like, yeah. you know, guys yeah. in a room playing and uh, really kind of capturing, like, a live band yeah. uh, kind of feel to it. Um, um, so, I should also mention that uh, Stone and McCready and Amet all worked for my uncle. My uncle, 
used to own an asphalt company in Seattle. Oh, really? And, yeah, and all three of those guys worked for, for him for a stretch. I mean, before I was, like, aware of them, before, you know, obviously before uh, they were huge. Um, but he said they were lazy stoners, uh, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> See, I felt like I feel like we should have talked about this at the beginning. We could have just talked about, we could have just shared, like, asphalt stories. Yeah, I don't have, that's about all I have, though. It's like, I, I would always beg him to show me, like, their pay stubs or something. I was like, just show me something that... And, you know, he was just like, why do you care about these guys? They were losers. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, were they were they writing even flow while laying asphalt? Right. You know? Like, right, they... <laughs> right. Like, late for work, stone, thinking about even flow. Oh, man. Well, you, so, know, uh, you know, I'm sorry that they were bad at construction, but yeah. they were good at rock and roll. So, you know. But they, sure, they sure were. Um, well, Dave, it's been fun revisiting this record with you, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for uh, asking me. It's been really fun listening uh, to the record again and talking to you about it. All right, man. Well, good luck with the War on Drugs record. And, you know, you heard it here first. This is going to be the verses to uh, Lost in the Dreams 10. I hope so. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep in a sauna or sleep in my truck, though, like, uh, like Eddie did. Just well, keep you my know. Ed- keep my edge. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, definitely sell your black sports car that you bought after Lost in the Dream. You know, you don't oh, want to get cool, soft. Yeah, I don't want to lose my job. <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> Thanks, well, Dave. All right, Dad, take, take it easy, man. All right. That was me and Dave Hartley from The War on Drugs talking about Versus, which I think is my favorite Pearl Jam record, although by the end of this series, I might feel differently. You know, you got Vitalogy coming up here. You have no code. I actually like Riot Act a lot. That's my favorite underrated Pearl Jam record. I think Backspacer is really good, too. There's a lot of Pearl Jam records I like, but I think Versus might be my favorite. So it was great talking about it with Dave, and I hope we talked about enough deep cuts, too, for you serious Pearl Jam fans out there. I know we talked about Rats a little bit, so that's good. That's a deep cut. I don't think they ever play that song. Not that they should play that song. I don't think it's that great, but, you know, it's fun to talk about. So, guys, thanks again for listening. This was part two of Vitalogyology of Celebration Rock. Um, and uh, I look forward to talking you, at you guys again next week.